Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Sam Friedman. And I'm Aisha Hazarika. And today we come to you live from the Festival of Higher Education at London Senate House. Today we focus on our universities, the challenges they face and what a future government could do to tackle them. Joining us today, we have a brilliant panel. We have the CEO of Universities UK, Vivian Stern. Hello, Vivian. Hello. We have James Pennell. James is the president of the University of Arts London and, of course, was formerly the Secretary of State for Culture, Work and Pensions under the last Labour government. Hello, James. And welcome to Mark Leach. Mark is the founder of Wonky. Is that, am I pronouncing it correct? Good. Wonky, a service that describes itself as the home of the UK higher education debate. Hello, Mark. Hello. Now, Mark, let's start with you, because you're sort of the reason why we are here, because we're hosting the Festival of Higher Education. Just explain to our listeners what that is and why it's so important. So this is a new event in the uh, UK higher education calendar, uh, an opportunity for everyone that works in universities to come together, debate the future of higher education, debate the future for the sector. We've got a lot going on right now, some political challenges, some economic challenges, um, and um, hopefully an opportunity to discuss it all in a, you know, out of the office, um, a bit of a chance to step back a little bit and uh, dive into some issues that you're not, mm. uh, you know, you don't work in every day. Uh, that's what the festival's for. Well, it, it sounds very important and very timely. Now, before we sort of get into the formalities and we, we start going through sort of some of the kind of policy details, just to kind of set the scene for our, our listeners, I want to ask my panel... Um, where and when, controversially, did they go to university? And what were their experiences like? How would you say your experience is sort of different to students today? Vivian, I'll start with you. So I went to the University of Cambridge and studied English literature. Um, and when was that? I, <laughs> 95 to 98. Um, 
And uh, I imagine it was a pretty atypical experience. But I did the thing I loved, right? I was trying to decide what I should study, and I decided, why don't you study something that just makes you really happy and excited? And that's what I did. And I think it's kind of worked out well for me. And do you think your experience is sort of different from the one that students have today? It's a very odd place. I mean, one of the things that kind of frustrates me, especially when you get into conversations with people about quality and they talk about contact hours, if you're studying English literature at um, you know, a place like Cambridge, you get patted on the head every now and again. And if the people who are... So, oh, this is, by the way, this is historical rather than... I'm sure, <laughs> you know, I just want to make it quite clear Cambridge probably doesn't do this anymore. But, you know, I, I, it, you were very, I had to be very self-directed. So, you know, I went to lectures when... The kind of lectures were interesting to me. The rest of the time I spent in the library, I learned a huge amount from my peers, and I occasionally turned up from a supervision, and if I was saying something interesting, then the person on the other side of the room would, would engage, and, and I had to earn that. And I right. think that was actually extremely powerful, but if you tried to kind of put... If you turn that into a bunch of metrics, it wouldn't look great, I don't think. OK, great. You were quite a self-starter, unlike myself. I had to be a bit of a self-starter, and I just basically lay in and watch Neighbours uh, twice a day. That was basically the extent of my kind of uh, self-starting university. James, what about you? W when did you go to university? Where did you go to university? And tell us about your experience. I went to Oxford. I went in 1988. I got a grant. Uh, so oh. I was part of that, so almost the last generation uh, to do that. Um, I almost went to drama school. Uh, I was all set to apply to drama school. And then my mum very cleverly, from her point of view, organised just a drinks party where lots of people would come and say how actually if you went to university you could do both and you could decide whether you'd become an actor uh, later on having done drama and got a, uh, a non-drama degree so that was my my route excellent so, uh, any plans to give the acting a go at a later stage some might life? say being a politician which yeah. is deploying <laughs> those, those skills but no i, I, I think uh, that type, that uh, ship has sailed and mark what about you where, where did you go to university and when i went to the university of kent in 2003 um, and I did politics and international relations, um, and, but I actually, I, I kind of, I went to university partly to get involved in student politics. I'm that much of a, of a nerd, uh, and I spent probably more time involved in student politics. Um, I had a blog about higher education policy. It's a true story, which is <laughs> forerunner to, uh, forerunner to wonky, um, and basically I've been doing that ever since. <laughs> And Sam, what about you? Where did you go to university and when? I, I did history at Oxford, so I was a PPE application away from being a completely generic Westminster <laughs> person. Um, well, I'd like to, I went to this country's third great university, Hull. And um, for those of you who've watched Blackadder, you will know the reference to that. <laughs> and then, because I was from an Asian family, my parents are like, you can be anything you want in the world, anything, as long as it's a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. <laughs> so I had to study law at university. That what was happened? The, I know, it's, they're very dis <laughs> Particularly with Rishi Sunak on the scene, I am such a disappointment now, trust me. The family WhatsApp group is not fun, trust me. Um, OK, so I want to go straight into the sort of tough policy issues that are facing the sector, because we haven't got much time, and there are lots of challenges around. Um, fees. Uh, it feels to me like we've almost sort of ended up in the worst possible place on, on tuition fees, where... Uh, they, they can't go up. They're sort of stuck at the level they've been for many years now um, and uh, I think worth about two-thirds of what they were uh, originally worth. Uh, at the same time, student finance is getting tougher for people graduating now this year with a new set of, of sort of rules, particularly for lower-income people coming through the system. Uh, and it feels like we're kind of stuck 
uh, in, in this sort of situation where they can't go up, university finances are uh, in a difficult place, students are suffering, graduates are suffering more than they, they were before. How does Labour, given the sort of constrained environment we're in, find its way out of this uh, mess that we appear to be in? Or am I, am I, am I being overdramatic? Vivian? I think it's a, I keep describing this as a puzzle box that, you know, you keep turning the thing around and trying to find a way in. It, it does feel like we're caught in a trap. And if we don't find a way out of it, something that is genuinely, in my view, quite important to the, you know, the, the, the life of this country, you know, to almost everything in it, um, slowly gets eroded over time. And we have to find a way out of that trap, I think. Um, and we've been turning this around and around in, in our minds. Uh, you know, all of the people around this uh, circle have been doing that. Um, and I suspect that the solution will be found in a combination of many places, not in one big thing. Carry on. Where, where are we going to find... Where are these many places? Well, so the first thing I'm going to say is going to sound hopelessly naive. Like, everybody says, forget about it, fees aren't going to go up. I think we've got to index link the fee. And I think we've got to do it. We probably will not be able to persuade a government to do it this side of the election, but I don't think we should be shy of suggesting that continuing to keep the, uh, the headline fee in England, of course, we've got a system which is different across the four nations, um, at exactly 9,250 uh, for the rest of time is clearly not the right approach. And I think it's important to bring time into it. Because if you say to people, you know, is the unit of resource for teaching going to stay as it is for the next two, three years? They might accept that that's, you know, that's a reality we may have to face. If you said in 2030, do you think we're still going to be where we are? You know, is, is that fee level going to stay at 9,250 till 2050? I would say no. So we're talking about time. And that, I think, is a way in. Mark, Labour have talked a bit actually about reducing the fee somehow without it costing any money. Do you have any idea how they propose to do that? It's always one of the, one of the options on the table when you look at this. Um, Ed Miliband promised to reduce it from, it was, it was nine at the time, he said he promised, promised to reduce it to six. You have to make up the funding shortfall somehow. Universities got to plan how much money they're going to have over, over the next few years. Um, you could reduce it, but that's not going to help with as Vivian pointed out, the, you know, the, the, the funding pressure on universities. So uh, the other thing is, you know, it's not that politically popular as well, so Public First did some interesting polling about this. Reducing tuition fees was, was one of the options they put in front of the public. That didn't really wash either. Um, none of the options looked very palatable. It is a political choice. It's probably not going to swing an election, um, but you are going to have to make a choice as a, as a government or uh, an opposition at some point. James, you're here representing your university, not the Labour Party, be clear about that, but, but, but nevertheless, you have been a politician, you've been in, in cabinet meetings where these kinds of tricky issues uh, were discussed. Do you think it's politically viable for the fee to go up? Do you think the next government, Labour or Conservative, is going to realistically be able to consider that? I, mean, I think you are in a better place if you can go to the Treasury and say, this is likely to pay for itself, and I think whoever's in power uh, after the next election will be highly focused on growth. I think actually the sector has won the argument that research is an investment which does exactly that. And now we need to do the same for um, investing in teaching and learning. We had um, Ian Diamond come to the UK conference who runs the Office of National S Statistics. And he had a very persuasive argument, I think, that you can trace future growth 
back to the number of graduates that you have and also the quality of their education. So if, you know, if they drop out more, if they get a, a less good experience, you have less growth in the future. So I think we need to make the argument that investing in teaching and learning is also important for growth, just as uh, research, uh, research funding has been. I, I agree with Vivian. I think you know, uh, we will have to breach that particular um, uh, issue at some point in the next few years. I'd like it to be after the next election. I don't think it's the only thing that can be done. I think some kind of linking of the tuition fee, looking at kind of teaching or social mobility grants so that the taxpayer is putting in a little bit more. You know, everyone benefits from people going to university. That's now down to about 20% of um, the cost of going to universities paid for by the taxpayer. That, that could go up. Uh, and in fact, the government, and this is a point that Mark made recently, you know, the government have just reformed the whole student finance system and say three billion quid, it's perfectly possible to look at spending that money in a different way, um, spending it on students now and their maintenance costs, because you know, that has really not kept pace with inflation. It was just over 2% the increase last year, compared to inflation going up to nearly 10%, as we know. You need to spend on students' education now by increasing the unit of resource, and also look at how um, uh, you can improve the graduate repayment thresholds and uh, and the marginal rate. There's quite a lot of money in the student finance system that you could get out if it was if the deck chairs were arranged in a slightly different way. Based on what the fees are at the moment, and assuming they didn't go up, how are you, as someone leading a university, making the numbers add up at the moment? So that's a really important question. People need to understand that at the moment there is a structural deficit in terms of home students. So on average, universities top up how much we get from the uh, government or by two and a half thousand pounds. So every home student costs us on, on average two and a half thousand pounds. Uh, and then for research funding, we get about 69% of the cost of doing the research. And that money is essentially coming from international students. So, so the, the UK public or English and, Welsh, English and Welsh public are getting the research and the teaching and education they get from universities uh, for much less than the cost of it. We've been able to make that money up from international students, but as we'll probably discuss, there's quite a lot of constraints on that. And actually, I think one of the emerging stories of the next few years is going to be some challenges around international recruitment. So I think basing the whole of our viability of our HE system on continuing to be able to do that would be very, um, very risky, I think. Which leads us on to our next topic, which was international um, students. Um, Vivian, I'll, I'll come to you. Many people argue that there is an over-reliance. I mean, James has just alluded mm. to that, um, and that's because of the, the financial modelling uh, at the moment. But just take us back a bit. Why has there been such an increase in international students? And does this matter? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Should we have an opinion on it, or should we let the sort of market decide? I mean, the, the, the first thing to say is it's unequivocally a fantastic thing that the UK is so appealing to students from all over the world. I mean, you know, we all benefit from that. The fact that our universities are quite often places where you get 150 nationalities on campus. You've got the opportunity to put people at a kind of formative stage of their lives, you know, in a room, in a kind of campus environment alongside people who've got very, very different worldviews and uh, perspectives, and that sometimes comes with its own challenges, but, you know, the, 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 it's broadly speaking a fantastic thing, and it's extremely beneficial not only to the universities from a financial point of view, but also to the economy. So at a, a sort of national level, it's worth about 41 billion. Uh, you break that down to a kind of constituency level, it's about 500 million uh, per constituency. Everybody benefits. Now, and I'm a massive cheerleader for let's ensure we remain 
one of the most attractive destinations for international students. But should we be in this position where we are heading down a path where we are funding our domestic education provision and research through something that is always going to be unstable? I think that's a major strategic error. And I think one of the things we have to do is ensure that policymakers understand that you can have something which is a really good thing and still believe it is unwise to be so dependent on it to, to meet your own national goals that a perturbation which happen all the time in this field uh, could you know, undermine your ability to provide domestic education and research. And James referred to this. You know, it used to be the case that the, um, the resources that international students brought into the system um, enabled universities to subsidise loss-making research. Now you're seeing that subsidy being diverted into domestic uh, student provision, and what that really means is we're reducing the national level of investment we're making in the research system. So that should also matter to us. And if you look at the finances of some of the most elite universities which, which get, take the most international students, it's now getting to the point where you know, the skew is so strong that maybe 40 50% of their income is coming from international students, 10% is coming from domestic students. So you can see the point you're making about the level of risk we're putting into uh, one basket here. And, and, it, and it's mainly from a small number of countries as well, China, India, um, et cetera, where you know, domestic sort of economic crashes in those countries or problems in those countries could, could, could have a serious impact on, yes. on, on, on our, our university's ability to function. Right? It's also, I mean, one of the things that sort of, I don't know whether I find this a source of cheer or slightly depressing, but all of the major advanced economies with kind of mass higher education systems are doing the same thing, right? So you look at, you, you, you know, the, the US to an increasing degree, um, Canada, and particularly Australia, they've got an, a sort of, as James described it, a sort of structural deficit in the domestic education system, which they're compensating for through mm. international education. So we're, in, we're not in a bubble. You know, it's not just about what we do. It's also about what other systems do in order to kind of preserve the, the offer they're able to, to make to their domestic population. So that, that's another dimension of complexity that I think we have to just bear in mind. And Mark, just the sort of political element of this as well, um, both in terms of you know, middle-class parents reading the newspapers and seeing international students taking more and more places that they want for their, their own children, but also the, the fact that it's one of the biggest sources of immigration into the country. How are, how are those things going to potentially sort of add risk into this or play into this as well? Yeah, it, it, it really will. So um, I don't think we've reached a tipping point of it yet, there's a, there's a demographic bulge that hits um, of 18-year-olds um, in England, particularly, um, so that you'd expect them to want to go to university if the demand continues at the, the rate it is or was to increase um, in, the, in the early 2030s. Um, if at the same time you've got uh, the continued you know, massive expansion of international students to help fund universities in the first place, there's going to become a, there's going to become a tipping point in politics where people say, um, you know, enough is enough is enough, and I don't think we've got there because if if it starts to be the narrative that I can't get into university because the place is being taken by an international student, even if that's just the perception rather than the reality, then as I say, universities are going to get into uh, very difficult uh, political waters, and and whoever is in in government, I think, is going to have to face some some difficult questions because it wasn't dealt with, you know, in, in the decade earlier when all of this was was well predi well predicted. Um, there's been lots of interesting research about immigration 
and what, you know, what people think of as kind of good migration and bad migration. Um, and um, a, a lot of international student activity, actually, people are, people are happy about. It's not the thing that is, um, is not, it's not the thing coming up on the doorstep. But uh, there, is, there is pockets of it that cause issues. Uh, particularly, we've seen a rise, for example, in uh, people bringing dependents along, and this is part of, part of the reason behind recent government crackdowns. If you ask people whether that should be allowed, um, they're much less, much less happy about that, particularly from some markets. So um, that's, that's a political hot potato that hasn't really, uh, hasn't really kind of cooked yet, um, and I'm a bit worried about it. And James, I wanted to sort of ask you, I mean, not with a sort of Labour Party political hat on, but immigration is an issue which is really kind of looming back into, into view. We're about a year away from the, the next general um, election. And we sort of seem to get quite mixed messages from the government around this. On the one hand, everybody behind the scenes will admit that international students are an, an economic powerhouse. Uh, I mean, basically, our university sector is like a great export. But then you have this very, very tough rhetoric, which actually the Labour Party has also been pretty tough on as well. Do, does that, do you worry that that has a chilling effect on um, universities' ability to, to promote British education overseas? I think we're starting to see uh, a bit of that playing through in terms of international recruitment. I, I don't think it's the only factor. I think you know, geopolitical factors, uh, the Chinese economy, there's a whole range of things, uh, range of things happening. I, I think it's something the sector has to listen to seriously. Mm -hmm. you know, I think there are some things that we need to keep on doing to make sure that people have confidence in the system. So, for example, making people pay up front when they, uh, when they come, working with local authorities to make sure that pressure on housing is, is properly managed. Um, but having said that, I think actually when you talk to the public, and I think UK did some polling, uh, actually the public's view of international students is pretty positive. And so the main thing that needs to be managed actually is this publication every year of the net migration statistics. Now, actually, if there are fewer international students coming to the UK over the next few years, we're going to start to help. Your listeners can't see my air quotes uh, for that, but that, that number is going to start to come down because we don't have time to go into how the net migration statistics yeah. work. But if there's fewer students coming than came in the past, that means that number will actually start to come down. So, so it may be that if that was really the only flashpoint for why people worried about this, and actually the public support this kind of migration, that there may be some space for politicians to be a bit more ambitious around it. And, and do you think student numbers should be part of those? Net migration. I don't think how you can... So, so I started off thinking that they shouldn't, but actually when you go into it and you think about what those numbers are trying to do, they're trying to capture how many people in the country. So, so it would be weird, you know, and although they come and go, there is a stock of people in the country at any one time who are international students. The, the way that it's calculated could be massively improved. It's one of those numbers that's published in black and white, but actually when you go and look at how it's done, it's based on two... Pre, you know, the... the uh, a survey of passengers and then some extrapolation. So I think the ONS are doing a review of how it's done and hopefully that number can become a bit more accurate. And just to pick up a final thing on, on this point, um, many people I, I speak to about the international students, everybody has a, a broad sense that this is a, a sort of a good thing. But an angle that has crept in over, the, I'd say, the last 
12 to 18 months because of geopolitics and security is over the issue of, of China and, and Chinese students. Do, do you pick up on, on, on that? I think it's an incredibly good thing at a time when... Oh, of course, there's some security areas which you know, we need to be thoughtful about. And there I, mean, I have a lot of MPs coming on my show, for example, and this is one area they always highlight. But at a time when our nations might be having difficult diplomatic relations, looking for the ways in which we can be in contact with each other and understand our cultures is incredibly important. It's more important when times are difficult diplomatically so that we don't uh, make mistakes by not understanding each other. So the fact that there are thousands of Chinese students going back every year having a good and deep understanding of the UK over time is, can only be helpful in terms of those, uh, the issues that those MPs would be, would be worried about. Yeah, I have to say I do worry about the sort of the the immigration element here. I mean, you know, you, you, Aisha, you 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 say most weeks you think Suella Braverman's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, which always makes me shiver. I don't. It makes horror. me shiver too, by the way. Um, <laughs> but but you know, if, if someone like that does take you know take over the Conservative Party after a, an election defeat, then you know she's going to run very heavily on this type of issue, which is going to make it very hard for a Labour government. Uh, to, to ignore, and although, as Mark says, students are not the sort of seen as bad immigrants, I'm also doing air quotes, I don't know why we should do air quotes. <laughs> um, They're just fun to do. Uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 they are nevertheless one of the few groups that you can actually really easily squeeze as a government. Um, so you know, it does feel like this is just going to, you know, is, is going to be a threat to the sector. No, I, I agree. I think, I think students are, for politicians who don't understand the finances of the sector, students could look like kind of low-hanging fruit, which could have some very profound consequences down the track. But it's, it's just, there's two sides of this coin. So there's the pressure on housing and local services. There's also the uh, money that is being brought in by international students. And I think it was in Australia when there was quite a big, uh, in fact, entire reduction in international students coming because of the lockdown that they had. Actually. What happened was lots of people whose businesses locally depended on, you know, my coffee shop sells mm. to international students, or you know, we provide transport for, for international students. Actually, there was a big backlash around losing that investment. So, so I think, I, I do think that is an argument that can be won because the substance is quite strong. And, and, and I mean, actually, before COVID, even Beijing used kind of economic retaliation against uh, for some diplomatic, you know, tussling. Yeah. They said to, they said they sent a signal that meant a you know a whole bunch of students didn't travel to Australia. A whole bunch of Chinese students didn't go to Australian universities that year. Um, they don't have to say very much to kind of move the market yeah. um, in, in that respect. Um, and it's a sort of kind of economic weapon you can use in the course of, you know, the, the diplomatic relations. And that's a that's a worry for, for UK universities which are very exposed to China. So, I mean, one attack on, on the university sector could be immigration. And another, which we've seen quite a lot, um, particularly from sort of backbench conservative MP groups, uh, but not only them, is this sort of sense of too many people are going to university. There's too many people doing um, sort of crappy degrees that aren't, aren't, aren't of economic benefit to them um, and would be better off, I don't know, doing woodwork or plumbing or something that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that, that they think is, is, is sort of the right thing for, for certain economic groups to do. Um, yeah, it, it, when you sort of do focus groups, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't stick in every part of the country, but there are some parts of the country where that that kind of line does have um, do, does does sort of stick and does create um, a sort of uh, get nods of agreement. Do you think it's a kind of serious threat, or is it just sort of mouthing off at the moment? It's a serious threat in that it has been. Um, it, you know, it's it's it's, a, it's more often rhetoric than policy, um, in that we hear it all the time from, from politicians. 
um, but they often don't follow it through with anything very, very tangible. No one's yet really been able to identify which are the, which are the crappy courses they're talking about. The, the flip side of this is they're not funding, they're not fully funding a skill system that would, that would actually provide the alternatives. So as long as they don't do that, then it is just rhetoric. It absolutely is, is just rhetoric. That said, there have been signals and regulation and policy that has helped improve quality in the sector um, over the last several years. Um, which has, it, it's sort of connected to the rhetoric. It probably doesn't go as far as you, know, you, might, you might imagine listening to Rishi Sunak talking about low-value degrees. Um, but it's, you know, some of that has been pretty, pretty interesting, pretty decent. Um, the sector talks about quality more than anything else. Uh, we've been talking two days non-stop about quality uh, at the festival. So that's probably a good thing. And James, the sort of sense, I think one of the things that frustrates me most about this debate is that, is that the assumption that universities don't do vocational, that the, that the university sort of sector is primarily about arts degrees. Um, your university is a good example of, of, of a sort of highly vocational, I mean, is doing vocational courses. How do you get politicians to understand the, uh, the, the sort of mix that's happened that's sort of within universities rather than sort of this sort of assumption that they've got in their heads? Yes, it's hard to think of a degree at my university that isn't vocational. Uh, we also offer uh, FE courses, so we have a foundation year which is further education, so we're Ofsted um, uh, inspected, and you know, it's a false choice. It, it, you know, it's a false choice between FE and HE, it's a false choice between apprenticeships and university degrees. You know, when you look forward to the kinds of jobs that people are going to be applying for and that the economy needs, they're high-scale jobs, so whether you're getting that through a degree apprenticeship or through coming to my university to do uh, a degree in product design, you know, we need both of those. And so if you look at the level of skills that we have compared to the kinds of economies that we want, like Canada or South Korea, they are educating 60-70% of their young people at university level, and we need to be matching that if we're to create the kind of innovation and the kind of skilled economy that we're going to need in the future. And just following on from that, um, Vivian, the Labour opposition party at the moment has been very clear saying we don't want to reach for the the lever of of immigration. Mm. We want to kind of really put skills on the agenda. But to to skill up people, you need time, you need a strategy, and you actually do need a good amount of collaboration between universities, further education colleges, uh, businesses as well. Do you feel that that is an area that that Labour is moving, is talking in the right direction um, about that? And could there be much more done to kind of bring together those three things? Yeah, they are. And I think it is it is something that, you know, it's, it's a subject of enormous interest. There's an awful lot of collaboration that already happens with every institution. I think pretty much there are a bunch of uh, university leaders in the room, and I think if you, you know, call anyone over coffee and ask them to describe how they're working with businesses, and you know, I was at, I was at UAL recently, you know, hearing about the way that you know structurally inst- institutions work with um, local empo- employers. There are lots of good examples of um, collaboration at the at the local or the regional level with um, with other education providers um, to make sure that you're sort of complementing and working effectively together. But could more be done? Of course, absolutely. And there are some reasons why things that might be in all of our interests don't happen. And there is a bit of competition between the FE and the HE sector, which I think we should all be thinking about how you reduce. Mm. Um, but just going back to this question about um, you know, have we got too many people going to university? There was a part of me 
when I heard Rishi Sunak describe the 50% target as the greatest policy mistake in 30 years, I just, I felt a little bit like I'd been kicked in the stomach. In fact, I was with James the same evening and I said, I think I've taken it a bit personally. And he said, you've taken it personally. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, there was part of me that thought, okay, no, because what Labour did in the following week was point out that you might believe, you may believe that we have historically underinvested in, um, in intermediate level uh, skills and in, in types of vocational education that are, you know, level four to six. Because as James says, we should just keep chipping away at the idea that there's this thing called vocational education and it doesn't happen in universities, because we all know that's complete nonsense. But the fact that I think Labour has decided to pick this up as a dividing line, I'm perfectly happy about that. And I also think it's quite important because, you know, what we're talking about is opportunity. You know, it's about whether... In the future, the kind of 18-year-old who was daft enough to be born at the top of an, a demographic peak has the same opportunity to go to university as the kid who was super smart and born in a demographic dip. And I'll tell you one thing, my kids are going to university, and my guess is Rishi Sunak's kids are going to university. And if you look at what the consequences... Rishi Sunak's kids will have a wing at the university. <laughs> <laughs> they probably will. But if you look at... I'm sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stat you. If you look at what the expansion of higher education has meant, so we've had a 150% increase in um, pupils who are, receive free school meals participating in English higher education since 2006, 150%. A uh, 10%, sorry, 15 years ago, less than 10% of free school meals students went to university. It's now 21%. 15 years ago, 12% of the most the students who live in the most disadvantaged areas went to university. It's now 28%. 15 years ago, um, uh, in the last 15 years, I should say, we've seen uh, a 200,000 increase in um, participation by students um, from black and minority ethnic uh, backgrounds and an increase of 250,000 in students with a disability. So when you think too many kids are going to university, those are the kids who benefited from expansion, and I think we should all defend that record. Can I just pick up on something just quickly? So, so from the stats you've just read out, that indicates to us that actually the, the fee structure and the tuition fees, as much as some people reel against it, has actually delivered a decent amount of social mobility. How does that compare with Scotland, where they, have, they yeah. don't have fees? Is it right to say that social mobility has declined in Scotland in terms of people going to university? There, there is, we actually, we're about to publish a piece of analysis. We're trying to work out how much of it we want to publish. Um, just looking at the consequences of the, the divergence in policy in, in different settings. But I think for a number of reasons, it's my view. I have to be really careful. Universities UK represents universities in all four nations, and the Scottish universities are not pushing for a move from the currently publicly funded um, uh, uh, system in which Scottish students don't pay fees. But I would say that there are a number of measures um, which demonstrate what happens if you continue to try to fund domestic education entirely through taxation. And um, the, the, you know, one of the things that has been a remarkable surprise to a lot of people as a result of the introduction of fees is the massive increase in participation by people from the least advantaged groups. Everybody said in 90, whenever it was, it was early noughties, um, that if you increased fees, um, it would put poor kids off from going to university. 
the exact opposite has happened. And, you know, I think that's something we could get better at explaining to people. What matters is what money they've got now. Yeah. I mean, you talk to students, that what they're worried about, uh, you know, there been lots of discussion of that the, the, over the last two days, is can they afford to feed themselves, can afford to pay their rent? So it's the fact that the maintenance loan hasn't kept track with inflation, which is the real problem. Actually, because people don't pay back their loan unless they're earning above a certain amount, the impact has been, you know, th there's definitely more communication that we need to do about that, but the impact in reality has been much less than people feared. Mm. Mm. Uh, the sort of Rishi Sunak line, um that Vivian, you mentioned, I mean, it annoys me for, m for many reasons, but one of which is just historically inaccurate because the biggest percentage rise was under the Thatcher and Major governments, mm. not under the Blair government. So if you think it's a mistake, you have to attack Maggie uh, for, for her, for her role in it. Um, but uh, my, my line, I think, now in, in sort of debates where Tory MPs sort of say, you know, too many people going to university, so, OK, well, the one near your constituency, we'll close that one down. Do you, do you like that? Yeah. They tend to go off it pretty, pretty fast. Um, but where, you, where, where, are, where I have um, sort of a bit more sympathy, I guess, with the critics of universities, um, uh, Mark, you mentioned quality. Um, I come from a schools background. Uh, I, I, I spent most of my career working in schools. We have incredibly rigorous assessment. We know exactly what's happening in terms of, uh, sort of differences between schools. We can compare schools in terms of exam results. Uh, many people in the school sector say we, we're too obsessed with, 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 with testing. But when it comes to universities, the, the data we have is far less reliable or useful. You have universities that have very widely divergent sort of intakes you know, getting very similar numbers of first class to one degree classifications. Um, and, and obviously we've seen a big, sort of big increase in first class degrees over the last 10, 20 years. Um, is that a problem? Are people worrying about it in the sector? Um, yes and no. It's important to look at, but you, you could make the case that um, someone coming in, um, having a great education, coming out with a, um, a high degree award, it's a success story, particularly, you mentioned the intake. I mean, it's all about context. You know, if you're much more likely to succeed at university, like in, your, in every single part of your life, depending on, uh, you know, it's, it's so much more dependent on your, your parents' income than it is anything else that happens at university. Um, so it's, it's all about context, it's about um, who your family is, it's about where you're from, it's about all the other factors that go into, um, into those demographics. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, grade inflation is, is one, yeah, it's one, of the, it's one of the things that gets thrown at the sector a lot. Um, but I, 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 I understand why it should be looked at, but um, I think most people in the sector say, you know, we're working hard to take students who come in um, and turn them, you know, educate them, give them a great experience, um, let them come out with a, a brilliant award to get a, a, a great job. And that's a journey, that's a process. Um, it's not, you know, it, 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 it should be heading in that, in that direction. But I guess, I guess my worry, and I say this as someone who has employed people myself in, in the past, um, is, that, is that because employers don't necessarily trust the degree status, uh, or even because so many people have the same degree classification, you get a kind of internal scoring mechanism in, amongst employers where they sort of say, well, I know this, this degree, I've, this, this university I've heard of, and I know this is sort of an elite university, so I'll, I'll take that first over a first from a university I haven't heard of or doesn't sound as elite. So sort of the lack of rigour between the two almost, almost puts at risk people who have done incredibly well at a less well-known university. Is that something I should be worried about? Yes. So, look, I think if we were thinking, have we got a a system for classifying degrees and assuring people of the quality of 
what's being delivered by higher education institutions and the standards that are being upheld? Have we got this system that is likely to retain the trust and confidence of students and the public and politicians into the next sort of half of this century? I would say there are a whole bunch of things we ought to be kind of opening the bonnet and having a look at. And actually, personally, I think that maybe we, we had to go to about 15 years ago at dismantling the degree classification system because we thought maybe it wasn't kind of fit for purpose in a mass higher education system. And it was very, it's one of these things that it's kind of really difficult to get a massive change like that through. I still think the right answer might be to move away from the, um, that crude classification system. I think that um, we ought to be thinking as a sector not about how do we defend ourselves from the charge that there is a quality problem, but how do we make sure we demonstrate we've completely gripped what this system needs to do for not just students in the past, but students in the future, to make sure that we retain the kind of trust and confidence of um, the public, of students and graduates. Because you know what? It's where we live. Reputation, it's all about that. You don't know what the student that you're, the graduate that you're employing did at university. You'll never have a very granular understanding of it. Even if you had, you know, 300 hours to shortlist, you'd still probably have a very sketchy idea of what they did. So trust really matters. I think that's on us. I mean, it's it just very odd to me, again, from a school's background, to have an assessment system where 80% of the people get one of two grades. It just, it just yeah. doesn't, doesn't compute. Um, James, if, have you had any discussions about changing this, looking at different ways of classifying degrees or awarding people? Well, we do look at it all the time, and it, it's one of the things which is challenging with a, a more self-regulatory system than schools, which is a lot of this is happening in universities. Um, and we, we do genuinely do it, and, you know, you have internal quality teams who care about this incredibly deeply, as, as does everyone in the, in the university. I know this is a view from the school sector that we're not um, uh, regulated in the same way. I'm not sure it's completely fair. So, for example, everybody in this room who works in the university will have just gone through the TEF, the mm. teaching um, uh, the review of uh, uh, teaching quality, that's based on a massive student survey across all years, postgraduate, postgraduate research, which gives you incredible data on how things are doing in every single one of your courses, as long as you get enough people replying. And that data is then used to improve um, uh, the delivery to, to students. And, and what that means overall is that arguably we have the highest quality HE system in the whole world. So the OECD does a study of this, and for example, they will compare uh, retention rates across it's the 19 OECD countries, and we come absolutely at the top. You know, and it's one of those things that people, I think, in, in Westminster, if they're listening, need to really understand. Is that compared to, for example, America, where there is a, a dropout catastrophe happening in many universities, mm -hmm. that just doesn't happen here because of the care attention that's put in. You know, we can always Im improve um, uh, how, how the quality system works, but actually we are pretty regulated. Yeah, well, my, my, my wife is an academic, and every time I start chuntering about regulation, I get death stares. At <laughs> I should probably shut up before I get myself into too much trouble. We're going to take a few questions from the audience. We've got time for just a couple, I think. We've got uh, one hand up over there, uh, and uh, another hand up over there, I can see. You've just said, tell us your name and where you're from. My name's Johnny Rich. I'm from the Engineering Professors Council and outreach organisation PUSH. I wanted to ask, what should be the role of employers when it comes to uh, tuition fees and paying for university? Who wants to take that one? Great question. James? I mean, there's the apprenticeship levy, so there is the, um, a principle there about how employers can contribute, and clearly they benefit. Um, so I think it's one of the things that can be considered. Uh, 
as a sector, I wouldn't put all of our eggs in that particular basket because I think it's quite possible that a future government, when looking at the need for growth, is going to be quite reluctant about putting more taxes on, on, on business. But clearly there's also an argument that, that they benefit pretty directly from good quality graduates. So I, I think it's one the sector should debate but not, but not rely on. I'm not going to ask everyone for an answer because there, there's a few questions around the room and I want to make sure we have time for... There's two as over there, I think. Yeah. Sorry, it's quite hard to see. Yeah. <laughs> swiveling well, around. I just, I, I just realised I can hardly see you because <laughs> yeah. of the light as well. It's, it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, you mentioned grade inflation. I'm a retired professor, taught science and technology. Um, and I observed uh, over recent years that more and more employers are less confident in the degree classifications and are using their own assessment tests. And I just wonder, do you think that is becoming a problem or, or something that has to be tackled? Or do you think it's not going to expand? My belief is it will expand more and more as employers uh, deploy tests like psychometric testing and other specific tests. Um, I mean, look, I, I think I've sort of, I've, I've explained that my personal view, and it is, I'm speaking as an individual here because I don't think it is a UK policy position that we should dismantle the classification system mm -hmm. and it would probably shock a whole bunch of people. I've said it in a slightly public setting. But um, I think we should try and help employers so that they don't have to put in place alternative. Because, you know, universities are pretty good at assessing students and they are, you know, they should be able to make, um, you, you know, they... they they, they should be able to deploy the science of assessment to make sure those assessments are rigorous and fair and, um, and, and you know, don't uh, result in any sort of disadvantage to an individual student for whatever reason. And so I think you know, we should probably help employers to make uh, good uh, uh, appointments on the basis of the information that we're producing. But you know, employers will be looking for different things, and it depends a little bit, I suppose, whether you're recruiting a student who's been prepared for exactly the kind of job you've got on offer, or whether it's something completely different. And I think, you know, I studied English literature. What I'm doing now bears very little relation to the degree that, I, and maybe an employer, uh, you know, recruiting somebody with a generalist background will need to test things that haven't been tested by their degree. But I don't know. I think it's an interesting subject to discuss. Mm. Um, interestingly, just following up on that, I've been doing some work in fact, with PwC and one of the big things that quite a lot of people are coming to them about is, yes, you have got the university degree as well, but there's this whole concept of a skills first hiring approach, which is kind of trying to look beyond the university degree, which I think is quite interesting. I could see that, you know, I think a hybrid thing is quite interesting there. I also have to say, just because I find it amusing, the first job I tried to um, get was as a uh, was as a secretary, <laughs> and um, so I was subjected to a, 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 a typing test, you know, to see if I could type um, fast enough, um, and I spent a weekend trying to develop my touch typing skills and failed. So there you go. That was one good example of my degree not having prepared me for a particular career. I'm going to shut up now. Yeah, well, I, I, I tried for the Waitrose graduate scheme and spoke throughout the entire assessment exercise, group ex exercise, and was obviously thrown out on the grounds I was um, far too opinionated, which is what an Oxford education does for you. My, my um, first job was with Tony Blair, and he was always so late um, uh, agreeing the text of his press release that I had to type it up incredibly quickly five minutes before he went on stage, and he got so annoyed with my two-finger typing, he sent me on a touch typing oh, really? course. Ah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, there you go. My only qualification. <laughs> on that note, we have to wrap up. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, thanks enormously to our three guests, uh, Jim Spinell, Vivian Stern and Mark Leach. Thanks.
thanks to all of you for joining us. Do remember to subscribe to The Power Test wherever you get your podcast. Episodes are released every Friday, but are available ad-free a day early to paying members. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have any thoughts or questions, tweet at The Power Test or email pod at thepowertest.co.uk. And our next live recording takes place on Tuesday the 28th of November at the Inclusive Growth Conference, organised by the Centre for Progressive Policy. The conference taking place at London's Royal Society asks how Labour can deliver fair economic growth, a very important topic. Speakers at the event include Ed Miliband, Paul Johnson, Claire Ainsley, Lord Jim O'Neill and, of course, Sam and myself. It's completely free to attend and you can sign up for tickets online. That's the inclusive growth conference on Tuesday the 28th of November. And we'll be back next week joined by the former chief economist at the cabinet office under Gordon Brown, Jonathan Portis. We'll see you then. Yeah, that was fun.